You're listening to audio from Genesis Community Church. To find out more, visit us online at genesiscommunity.church. Acts chapter 20. We're going to start in verse 17. And to kind of set the stage for you of what's happening here, uh, this is um, the way back home on Paul's third missionary journey. So he's been ministering now for many, many years, traveling uh, as an apostle sent by the Lord Jesus, um, recruiting and training fellow disciple makers, missionaries, church planters to travel with him. And uh, at some points he has a, a pretty good team with him. Other times he feels a bit alone. And you see that in some of his letters that were written during his travels. Um, but one of the churches that he helped establish uh, was a church in Ephesus. And Ephesus was a very major city, um, a, a very um, wealthy kind of Roman colony type city. And the population there was at first really opposed to his message uh, and really twisted his message. There were Jewish people who had a hard time with what he was saying and stirred up controversy. And then there was just the Gentile unbelievers there who had their own gods and uh, either didn't want to worship this foreign god named Jesus or who decided Paul was the god that they were going to start worshiping because of the powerful things God was doing. There were riots and all kinds of things uh, that happened during Paul's ministry there. But on his way back through this region, he, uh, he stops here in one city that's near the city of Ephesus, and he calls for the elders of that church in Ephesus that Paul had spent about three years, two years plus, some months, uh, traveling, uh, sorry, being with them. Uh, he stops there in this town, and he calls the elders from Ephesus to meet him because there's a lot of things in his heart that he wants to share with them. There are a lot of things that he wants to encourage them in, warn them about. And so what you're going to see here, starting in Acts chapter 20, verse 17, is Paul calling them to him and giving this kind of speech, which is probably, I think, the longest speech you see Paul give in Acts towards Christians. It's really the only speech of its kind in the whole New Testament where an apostle is speaking directly to believers, and, and you have a quotation from him from that moment. So let's read this together. I'll, I'll just read the whole passage, um, and then we're going to stop and pray and ask the Lord for some help to just learn from him this morning. So Acts chapter 20, starting in verse 17. Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him, and when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonments and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course 
and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. And they embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. Let's pray. Lord, we need your help this morning. We want to learn from you. That's why we've come here to this place and gather together and have sung songs to you and prayed to you and read your word here in this place. It's because, Lord, we want to learn from you. So will you please teach us? Please cause your spirit to move among us with mighty power, to move on our hearts, to open them up, to enlighten us. Lord, not for the goal of us just acquiring knowledge about you that we can say to each other, that we can uh, write books about, that we can write interesting or compelling Facebook posts about. Lord, please move on us with power that we would be transformed to be more like Jesus this morning. This is what we need from you, from your spirit, from this word of grace that you've given us, Lord. These things that Paul knew you could do in Ephesus, please do here among us. We ask for you to speak with purpose and with power, Lord. Speak even prophetically to us this morning. Cut to the heart. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So here we have Paul the Apostle who had spent all this time with these people he had loved when he arrived in Ephesus there were no believers by the time he, uh, oh, my, is this going to be better or worse now? Better. Okay. Thanks, Derek. 
so now we have here Paul who had been spending those three years in Ephesus, no, no believers when he arrived, now this church here as he's saying goodbye to them, and he has this kind of father's heart and this pastor's heart. And because of this heart he has, he wants to be very careful about how he encourages them, how he gives this kind of final equipping and challenge to them. So he's very specific. Did you notice in his speech there to the elders of the church how specific he was about certain things? Very particular things that he wanted them to remember. He's calling them to remember throughout this entire speech. So in verses 18 and 19, you see he wants them to remember his way of life. When he came to them, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears, with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. He wants them to remember his way of life. Remember that day I arrived in town. Remember how, I, how you saw me search out the Lord and search out those who need him and proclaim truth. Remember the way I served you, the way I loved you. He wants them to remember that. We see in verse 20, he wants them to remember his teaching. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. He wants them to remember his teaching. His evangelism in verse 21, he's calling everybody to repentance and to belief in the Lord Jesus. He wasn't willing to just kind of grab one group of people and be satisfied if they heard or if they believed, but he spent his entire three-year ministry with the purpose in his heart that all would hear and all would believe. He wanted them to remember his evangelism. In verse 31, we see he wanted them to remember his love and his eagerness for them. Remember, look at me, uh, look with me at verse 31. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. He says that more than once in his speech with tears, with tears. He loved them so deeply. His heart was so full for them. It was with passion, with eagerness, with urgency. It mattered to him that they believed. He wanted them to remember that. How with tears he admonished them. Then verses 33 through 35, he wants them to remember his sacrificial service to them. Look at verses 33 through 35 with me. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. It's interesting to note that nowhere in the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, do we see Jesus saying these things. But this is something Jesus said and was passed down to Paul and he took it to heart. It's more blessed to give than to receive. And so he worked hard his entire time of ministering to the Ephesians. He didn't want to be a taker. He wanted to be a giver as an example to them of the Lord Jesus. 
and he wanted them to remember this. He reminded them of all these things in order to show how they have been prepared, these Ephesian elders. Remember, it's just the leaders of the church he's talking to here. He wanted them to remember how they had been prepared for leading and caring for this flock without him. That they had been equipped that the Lord had ministered to them through Paul at times, through each other at times, through Paul's team at times. They had been led and cared for and equipped and trained and taught, cried over, pleaded with, and that now after three years, they are ready to take this ministry without him. So in Paul's ministry, or his race, as Paul likes to call it sometimes, this race that the Lord has marked out for him and that he's called to run, in Paul's ministry, his race, he had spent three years running with them, helping them, encouraging them, holding their hands, challenging them. Sometimes it probably felt like he was dragging them. But now he knows that his race is diverting to another path that the Holy Spirit has convinced him that he is going to Jerusalem and the whole church of Ephesus is not supposed to go to Jerusalem. He's going, they're not. And so he wants them to know that they are prepared by God and his gospel, his word of grace, that they are prepared to run faithfully. He wants them to know these things. This is why he calls them, remember, you know, remember. He's saying all these things that they would know the Lord has prepared them, that they would have confidence in God and in his gospel, that that is what they need, that they don't need Paul. For a time, they needed it by God's design, but now by God's design, they don't need Paul. This is Paul's heart as a church planter, as an evangelist, as a pastor, because that's really his heart here as a pastor. He wants them to know for sure that it's never really been him that they needed. It was always God and this word of his grace. And he was just a messenger, an equipper, a trainer. It's God that they need. And he wants them to remember that and know that. Anything that they see in him, he says later in letters, only see that it was Christ in me. As you look at me and see me as an example, only see me as an example of the greater example, Christ. So now that Paul has fulfilled his ministry to the church in Ephesus, notice where his hope lies for them. In verse 32, imagine him as this father handing his children off to another caretaker. Those of you who have children, can you imagine Can you imagine if you'd been spending all these years with your children, loving them, training them, equipping them, crying over them, loving them, seeking the good of their souls, and then as their caretaker, it comes time for you to hand them off to another one. Now, right now, in the life of my family, it's hard for me to even imagine that kind of scenario. What would have to happen for me to be handing my children off? But as I imagine that scenario, I imagine a lot of concern. Can't you feel that? A lot of concern because you have personally been pouring your life 
into these human beings. They matter so deeply to you. They've been entrusted to you. And now the idea of handing them off to another caretaker, you want to have confidence in the person that you're handing them off to. So look at verse 32, and we'll see where Paul's hope lies for them, the caretaker that he is entrusting them to. And now I commend you, or I entrust you to, God and the word of his grace. God and the word of his grace. You all know what the word of God's grace is, right? It's the gospel. The gospel, how Jesus Christ came, God, into the world, lived this perfect sinful life, proclaimed the good news of the kingdom, called people to repentance and faith in him, went diligently, purposefully to the cross to give himself as a sacrifice in our place for our sins. Buried, dead in a grave, the grave that belonged to us but then was risen on the third day back to life again, an expression of his victory over the sin that he had paid for on the cross. And now in his victory, he reigns on high at the right hand of the Father until the day he'll come and rescue his church finally and forever from sin, from pain, from sorrow, from brokenness, from failure. This is the gospel. Jesus has come and he'll come again. This is the word of God's grace. And Paul, as a father, as a pastor, as a church planter, as a missionary, as an evangelist, as a friend, he's saying, now I'm entrusting you completely, hands off to God and his gospel. He's all you need. He's all you need. I've just been this tangible expression of God and the word of his grace to you, but now I'll no longer be tangible. And your eyes have to be fixed completely on God and the word of his grace. You have to consume it. You have to feast on it. You have to feed it to one another constantly. This is your sustenance. He's all you need. So Paul now commends them to God, to the gospel. He hands them off finally. And he's done He's finished the course of his ministry among them. He's finished his race holding the hands of the Ephesians. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and he prayed with them all like a father with his children saying goodbye for the last time. You can imagine, verse 37 makes so much sense. You can feel that in this moment. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul, they kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken that they would not see his face again and they accompanied him to the ship to say goodbye. Now, I know right now, uh, I'll just be real with you. If you're new here and you've never heard me preach before, there's always gonna be some awkward moment, all right? And you just have to get ready for that. And, and the awkward moment always comes where the preacher says the thing that everybody was kind of thinking or feeling, but they felt like it might be weird to say, but he just goes, well, this is it anyway, right? So here's the thing. 
the Lord used me to plant a church, and the Lord used me to, in some ways, minister, preach, prepare, train, equip, cry over you, pray for you, love you, be with you, laugh with you, all these kinds of things, right? The Lord used that for a time, and now is using you to send me away, not because I'm fired, I hope, <laughs> but... Like, do you, maybe you should go to Thailand or something. I don't know. But, but honestly, sincerely, truly, because we're all believing that the Holy Spirit has decided to do something new, has decided that there's a diversion in course where we're both headed for the same goal, the glory of Christ, but we're, but we're on two kind of parallel paths there now rather than us being holding hands together on the same path. And, and so I know that when we read a passage like this, and then here I am, and I'm preaching it, that it would be very easy for us to go, oh, I get, we came here this morning to go, oh, Patrick's leaving. That's why we're so, okay, let me, hang on, let me work up some tears, let's all weep, let's kiss Patrick, okay, which is fine. But it's not about that. It's not about that. Maybe there are, some, there are some things that are like that, okay? And because this is a church that is led by the Holy Spirit, that's about the glory of Christ, that's about his mission and fulfilling the calling we've received from him, then there, of course, are going to be situations where it's like, hey, I'm reading my Bible and I'm seeing some similar kind of patterns, okay? Like people that are really important to us, we're sending away, we're letting go of, we're commending them. I commend you to the Lord, you commend me to the Lord. We let go of each other for the purposes of the kingdom. These things are gonna happen, all right? But what's happening here is not about me or my family. It's, not, it's much more about you it's about your faithfulness to him. It's about your readiness to be faithful to him. You're prepared. You've been equipped. You know Jesus. You know the word of his grace. You've experienced the power of his spirit. So if I, if I can, just point that out and now let's, Keep moving and let's examine what I believe is the most important and powerful example that Paul set for the Ephesian elders. Of all the things that he said here, of everything that he called them to remember, there was one thing here that I believe was burned into their memories that was more powerful than anything else he even listed for them to remember. And I want to point it out to you right now. So if you would please, starting at verse 22 of chapter 20, read with me. And now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit. When he says constrained, uh, another way you could translate the Greek that Luke used there is bound in. Bound in. Like there was something the Holy Spirit had for him to do, and he was bound, he was constrained, it was inescapable. 
constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there. And now the reason why he says that to them is because they knew he had a lot of enemies in Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the center of the Jewish universe. It's where the temple was, where, where people worshipped. And they did not accept, the majority of the religious rulers did not accept that Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of their Jewish religion and that faith in him would result in salvation and that even a Gentile, a non-Jew person could put faith in Christ and join the family of God. They didn't accept or receive these things. And so Paul, being the kind of most famous proclaimer of this word of grace for Jews and Gentiles, was state enemy number one in Jerusalem. So he says to them, I, I don't know what's going to happen to me there, but verse 23, except that, now there is one thing I know, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. I don't know what my enemies will do with me when I get there, but I know that I am bound in, I am constrained by this purpose that the Holy Spirit has given to me. I must go to Jerusalem. A calling from God, a mission from God to continue proclaiming the gospel in every place At this point, what the Ephesian elders are hearing, what Paul's team is hearing, is suicide mission. That's basically what they're hearing, suicide mission. Because you remember that Jesus, this proclaimer of grace in him, salvation in him, eventually made his way back to Jerusalem, and we all know what happened there. He was crucified. He was handed over to the Gentiles, and he was murdered because of what he preached. And here's Paul carrying the same message heading back to Jerusalem. It all felt eerily familiar to them. So what they're hearing is suicide mission, and he knows that, so he goes ahead and addresses it. I don't know what's going to happen, except that I know for sure everywhere I go, the Holy Spirit says to me, suffering, persecutions, imprisonment afflictions. He knew that. Eyes wide open. But now look at verse 24. And here we are with what I believe is the most powerful example, the most powerful memory that would be burned into the minds of the Ephesian elders to equip them to be ready to face the challenges that they would face in leading the church in Ephesus. In light of all that I will suffer, in light of all the afflictions that await me, I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. I do not account my life of any value or as precious to myself, except for this one thing, that I may finish my course 
and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. For Paul, all value in life is derived from devotion to Jesus and his gospel. All value in life. Listen, you can look at my notes. I tried to sum it up, and I had to like scratch it out and move on and find the... What was it that Paul is really boiling this down to that he found value in only? There's one solitary purpose that he finds value in, that his life was worth it. What is that one thing? Devotion to Jesus and his gospel. Here's the thing. So Paul says that, and that's alarming, and that is drastic and extreme, and you're like, well, of course, he's the Apostle Paul. He had to feel that way. But he's the Apostle Paul. That's his perspective, or that was his course, that was his calling, his mission. That all value in life is derived from devotion to Jesus, and his gospel was particular to him. Listen, here's the thing. He's not wrong. He's not wrong. All value in life is found in devotion to Jesus and his gospel. He's not wrong. I know that is a very blanket statement. I know that I didn't qualify it with any things like, well, I mean, all life has value. Without any kind of qualifications, without any kind of excuses or sidebars or anything like that, listen, all value in life is found in devotion to Jesus and his gospel. He's not wrong. How is it that that can be absolutely categorically correct? How is that possible? When life is so complicated, there's so many things we have to give attention to and care to and spend time on. How is it that there's really only one thing of any value? Are you telling me my job is meaningless? Are you telling me my family is meaningless, that my devotion to them is meaningless or worthless? Are you telling me that good works have no value? What I'm telling you is if they're not about Jesus and his gospel, they're of no value. They don't have any value intrinsically, only that which reflects and magnifies and glorifies the Creator has any value. Because all of life is about Christ. The Lord Jesus created all things. Colossians 1. All things were created by him and through him and for him. He is creator. And just in that sense, we belong to him. And so all of life is for him. And so only those things that are meant for him have value. But listen, we're not just his in one sense because he created us. We are doubly his 
Because he created us and then redeemed us from our fallenness. His creation is his, but his creation rebelled and he entered back into it to save us from our sins. And now we are doubly his. If anyone would understand the worthiness of Christ, it would be those who've been redeemed by his blood. He is worthy. He's worthy of all devotion, all devotion. Now, when we say those kinds of categorical, absolute statements, I know it's like most times you get to some point where you're like, well, and it kind of starts breaking down. I know that that can happen a lot. There are very few things that you can speak of in this kind of way where you give no exception, no qualification, and it always holds to be true. Very few things. Jesus is the one. His worthiness is the thing. It never breaks down. It never ceases to be of preeminent importance. All things are for Him including every millisecond of your life. One second of living not for Christ is a second wasted. It's a second that fell short of its fullest glory. He is all worthy, and so all of life is for Him. It should be devoted to Him. Now, I, I want to stop for a moment and because I'm a human being and because I do the thing where I read the Bible and then I try to apply it to myself, but so often I find my applications getting wonky and weird or even feeling just kind of theoretical, but never really having anything to do with me. Are you tracking with me? That makes, you know what I'm talking about? Where you read the Bible and you go, okay, Paul, missionary journeys, church planting, riots, persecution, afflictions, imprisonment. Uh, He's going to make a journey to Jerusalem where all these opponents of his are centered there waiting in a trap for him. Okay, I I know what's going on here. He's got all these disciples gathered around him. They're going to lead a church. And now he's listing things to them to remember how they've been trained and equipped and made ready to lead this church. And he's got this example in him of boldness and of courage bound in the Holy Spirit to just throw himself into the mission of Christ and not be afraid of the results because if he doesn't, his life is worthless anyway. Better to live worthy and die than to live worthless and live. Now let me take all of that and condense it and just apply it to my own life. I was just gonna go to work tomorrow. my My kids are loud. I don't... What am I supposed to do? Right? What are you supposed to do with that? He's the Apostle Paul. What is stupid, limited, sinful, weak, selfish me supposed to do about all that? So here's what we do. We make it hypothetical. That's what we always do. We take these kinds of things, remember, remember, you're ready, the Spirit's with you, Christ died for you, all of life is for him, now launch yourself into his mission and live every second for him. Okay, like, um, 
Okay, so youth camp, Thursday night. Okay, you only got one more afternoon left here. Everybody's crying. The worship goes on for hours. And here comes the speaker. They put a gun to your head. Deny Jesus or die. What do you do? This is what we do with it. What is that? That has nothing to do with your actual, like, okay, you're not a first century apostle. You're not on a journey to Jerusalem. No one's got a, like, spear to your head. They're not circling the chariots. What do you do with that? What, how can you apply this to your life in a way that is not hypothetical? That is not just some kind of fantastic scenario you imagine to wonder how you would do in the midst of it. I one day, if I find myself in that kind of crazy situation, what would I do? If I knew that, okay, if I obey the leadership of the Holy Spirit in my life and I'm devoted fully to Christ and his gospel, I know for certain it will result in persecution, in affliction, in imprisonment. I know for sure. What would I do? It's not a worthless question, but when you wake up tomorrow morning, it probably won't be what you're living out right? Because you live in like spring tomball, the woodlands, and, and you have a job or you have a home to manage. You've got some cars that need oil changes. And what do you do? What am I supposed to do? Isn't it weird to think this way? Almost kind of like disturbing and scary. The reason why it's disturbing and scary is because we're so accustomed to coming here and having a gathering like this where you all sit in some chairs there facing this direction and somebody stands here, opens a Bible and shouts things that direction and you take all that information and you hypothesize about how you might be devoted to Christ in some extreme way, in some extreme time or circumstance and it doesn't feel real. What Paul is encouraging them about here doesn't feel real. Like, what are we supposed to do with some of the things he says? I know that even among you elders, some are gonna rise up and, and try to distort the, you know, the truth and tear up the flock. We, okay, so elders, come up front. Let's try to figure out which one of the Genesis elders we're supposed to kick out preemptively. I, what are we supposed to do? Are we supposed to just start planning a different course for our life that necessitates suffering so that we can apply this? It's weird to think, isn't it? That, that these things matter deeply. That what he's saying is true. Christ is worthy of all devotion. His gospel is worthy of all devotion. And yet this kind of wow factor seems to be missing from our lives. So here's how I want to encourage you. It is unnecessary to make this hypothetical. 
It's unnecessary. Because there actually are spiritual enemies that are opposing you and your Savior. Your calling that you have received from Christ. Real spiritual enemies. You don't have to make up new ones. You you don't have to sit and dream and fantasize and imagine enemies that are opposing you in some kind of crazy situation that you dream up so that you could try to apply this to your life in, in in a hypothesis about how you might do. You don't have to imagine that or make that up. You have real spiritual enemies that are opposing you right now. But do you know who they are? Those kinds of attacks that are going to come, the way you will be afflicted, the way you will be tempted, the way the, way the world will oppose you and what, how religious people will oppose you with their own view of God and how to be in unity with Him, do you know them? Do you know that what Paul is saying here to these Ephesian elders applies directly to this church? Applies directly to your life. That Paul was a Christian, an extraordinary Christian, one used by God in a powerful way and a way that's recorded by Scripture as an example for us. But at the end of the day, He'll be another Christian gathered around Jesus' throne. And for him to recognize that life only has any value when it's devoted to Jesus and his gospel is directly related to you and your life. And you have received a calling from Christ Jesus that you must be single-heartedly devoted to. And if you're not, then you're missing value. Those things that you are devoted to that are not named Jesus are not worth it. And I I know that I don't have to list what those things are because I've been a Christian long enough to know that when I say that, the Holy Spirit starts creating the list in your own heart We don't have to list it out loud here. Those things that you're devoted to that are not named Jesus are not worth it. He is. He is worth it. This example of Paul knowing that Jesus is worth it and being willing to go directly to the heart of of affliction and imprisonment and, and persecution, counting his life only of any value if he finishes his course in the ministry that he received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. This, this very obvious scenario is meant to be an example for us to apply to our lives. It's just that you're not going to Jerusalem, you're going to your job, you're going back to your home, you have a marriage, you have maybe some children, maybe you are seeking a spouse. And are you seeking a spouse to the glory of Jesus? 
Are you going to go to your job in the morning to the glory of Jesus? Are you going to speak to your kids to the glory of Jesus? Are you going to spend this afternoon to the glory of Jesus? Is this afternoon, Sunday, December 16th, 2018, going to be devoted to the glory of Jesus? If it's not, then it's of no value. That's just... Don't look at me, look at your Bible. It's of no value if it's not devoted to Jesus and his gospel. So then we just have this very stark decision to make about our lives. How will we spend our seconds? Our seconds. Not our hypotheses. Not our theories, not our imaginations. Because it's easy to dream. How will we actually spend our seconds out of devotion to Jesus and his gospel to live a life that is of any value, that is of utmost value, rather than living a life that is just of worthless pining and seeking and idolizing? How will we spend our seconds out of devotion to Jesus? Now, again, if the trap is hypothesis, okay, if, if we're going to take these scriptural truths and the trap that's laid before us is to fall into this hypothetical kind of pit where you're just imagining how you might be faithful, but you're not actually seeking to act, do it in your own life. If the trap there is hypothesis, okay, but you go, whoop, and you sidestep that, and, and you're able to avoid this hypothetical trap and start actually trying to apply it to your life, then what is it that you have to watch out for? What is the enemy to your devotion to Jesus and his gospel? It's the same enemy that they had. It's their own competing desires. Their own competing desires, which is, again, exemplified in the fact that their greatest enemies were going to come from within their own elder team. The heart of the church, the leaders of the church. It was from within the core of the church, those most devoted, that's where the most danger was going to come from. And it serves to just exemplify. It's from your own, as James says, from your own desires arise these temptations to lead you astray. If you can avoid the trap of hypothesizing about faithfulness to Christ and, and you can actually start trying to live every second in devotion to him and his gospel, the greatest enemy you're going to face is going to be yourself your own competing desires. And that's why we need to be walking every day by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's why he encouraged them the way he did. Remember, remember what the Lord's done. Remember what the Lord's taught you. Remember, you've been entrusted to God and his gospel. He's with you. He's working in power for you. He will be the one that grows you, transforms you, leads you, fulfills your joy. We have to be walking in the power of the Holy Spirit. 
And if that seems like a very impractical kind of point of application for you, I'm not really sorry. I know you may be disappointed because you were looking for some things to check off, but that's how it is. And I know sometimes I can be frustratingly, frustratingly kind of that guy who's always in the clouds. But all of life is about devotion to Jesus and his gospel. And the only way that we will find ourselves fulfilling that calling and living a life of any value is if we are perpetually devoted to walking by the power of the spirit of Christ. Because his desires are pure and they're for the glory of Jesus and our desires are competing and for the glory of ourselves. So if I can leave you with just something to do this afternoon, it would be to devote yourselves completely to Jesus and his gospel and walk in the power of his Holy Spirit as we see exemplified by the Apostle Paul, even to the detriment of his life. Even to the detriment of your schedule. Even to the detriment of your calendar. Even to the detriment of your reputation. Devote yourself to Jesus and his gospel in the power of his Holy Spirit, you will live a life of extreme, utmost value because Christ is of extreme, utmost value. He just is. And that's why we see in Revelation chapter four, everyone gathered around his throne, proclaiming his worthiness ascribing all power and majesty and authority and dominion and worship to him. So let's do that now. Let's do that now, like this afternoon, tomorrow, on the way to work. Yes, on the way too, because road rage is not like, oh, except unless someone cuts you off. On the way to work, when you walk into work, as you work, when you leave work, when you arrive back home, when you've been home all day long and these little sinners are just not about your agenda. In all of these moments, they matter. They matter so profoundly and deeply as much as they matter to the glory of Christ. So let's just apprehend them. Seize them. For what matters most. Let's not, let's not take Paul's example and just turn into a big hypothesis about a gun to a head, an opportunity to be faithful and die or to refuse him and live. Let's not do that. Let's do it in our actual lives. Say no to our competing desires. Say no to the spiritual forces working against us, competing for devotion and affection. And let's devote ourselves fully to Jesus and his gospel. If we're gonna need the power of the Holy Spirit in order to see it actually happen in our everyday seconds, then let's start praying now for his help. Jesus, we know that you actually are worthy of all devotion. And we know that 
the mission of your gospel's proclamation to every people group in every corner of the earth and every neighbor in our neighborhood is absolutely worthy of our devotion. We see from your word that these things are undeniably true. We know in this futuristic, imaginative way that we can picture what it would be like for us to gather around your throne and to worship you with our hearts full of desire for your glory. But Lord, as much as we know these things, please help us to avoid the trap of just hypothesizing about it. Of just being like people who look in a mirror and then turn around and forget what they look like. People who hear the word and are moved in the moment, but then as soon as we turn around, get in our cars, go to lunch, it just vanishes, just dissipates over the course of the day. Help us to see in Paul what we find in Christ. Pure devotion to that which matters most. Lord, please rescue us from our competing desires. Please fill us powerfully with the Holy Spirit that your church would be wholeheartedly devoted to you. And Lord, it comes to my mind even as I ask for these things. To pray for those who right now feel very far from you. And that basically everything that's been said here feels like a hypothesis. Like if I had been living some other kind of life, maybe, if I had done better, if I was in a better place, spiritually, emotionally, then maybe I could see this being realistic, but right now I just feel so far away. Lord, those people who came here this morning, maybe not even hoping to find more of you, but just out of custom, out of some vague sense of responsibility, Lord, would you please surprise them? Surprise them. Even now as I ask for it, Lord, would you move on their hearts with real love and grace and power that's undeniable, causing all these words, this word of the gospel of your grace that's found only in Christ, would you cause these things to tear out those obstacles between them and you? Would you deposit, please, a clear sight, a clear path? They can see you there and they can run to you and be embraced by you. And then those of us, Lord, who came here this morning with a sense of I got this. I hope somebody else is learning from this. Or would you please humble us? 
humble us and help us to see ourselves as in desperate need of you. Would you bring conviction about all the seconds squandered for selfish gain? Finding fulfillment and joy and purpose in things not named Jesus, things that will disappoint, fall flat, things of no value. So Lord, we we just offer this enormous request of you uh, right now that you would work in us so that we would become fully devoted to Jesus, to his gospel, by the power of your spirit, for the glory of his name, so that our lives would be of utmost eternal value. It's what we ask for. It's what we need. It's what you're worthy of. Please, Lord, do it now. In your name, for your name, because of your name, we ask. Amen.